Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bresky and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And welcome to another beautiful spring week from Wisconsin, which means, yes, we had our spring elections. Our whole panel is here and we're going to we're going to dive into spring elections. It means Claire Zalke, our healthcare director here at Citizen Action, is with us. Claire, good to see you from your safely COVID safe from your home. How are you doing, Claire? Good. I'm doing well. Thanks, Matt. Happy to be here. Yes, yes. And Claire's been super busy because we are continuing our push around healthcare in the state budget. And uh, it just uh, lots of events. So, uh, Claire, it's been great work. But also, Robert Craig is with us. Robert's our executive director here at Citizen Action. Robert, good to see you also. Happy vaccination season to our uh, digital and radio audience. Oh, we will definitely talk more about that because vaccinations, super, super important folks keep encouraging people to get vaccinated. Everybody is, if you're 16 or older now, you're all eligible and we need to uh, make a big push. Uh, we'll talk more about vaccinations later in the show, but uh, we had a very important election, spring election this week. Um, we have talked quite a bit before the election about it. Uh, this of uh, the there are six election cycles that occur every four years, and this is the lowest turnout of those six election cycles, uh, and that's i.e. spring and fall elections over a four year period. But it is important to note that turnout was up relative to 2017, uh, and I believe statewide turnout was around 20 percent. But that just gives you a perspective of how sort of low turnout is compared to say a presidential or even next year's fall election. But with that, there were the, the biggest race, and I wanna start the conversation around this was Jill Underly uh, won going away. This was not even close. Um, and uh, against, again, against Kerr. And uh, this broke down in, in, in many ways as a very partisan race. Um, but I think the biggest factor was the money spent. Underly ran a campaign that was a million dollar plus campaign. There was also some independent spending and Kerr had virtually no spending. Um, and I think the results uh, demonstrate that. Uh, I also don't know that a lot of spending would have saved her in any way, but it certainly could have made the race a little more competitive. But those are my initial thoughts. Claire, um, you, obviously, edu public education is a huge thing for you as a former school board member. Your thoughts on uh, the big DPI superintendent race? First of all, I'll say that this is an exciting outcome. I always think it's exciting whenever um, people come together in support of public education. Uh, too often, public education and education-related elected offices take a back burner to other uh, positions. And so, so, you know, allowing the state superintendent and school board seats to have the spotlight is great. Um, I wish it were an election where more people voted. Uh, <laughs> one of the reasons why I ran for school board uh, in 2013 was, um, even though I didn't have kids, I thought, 
you know, our children affect all of us and the quality of school districts affect all of us, whether you are coming from the perspective of a property taxpayer and you want your, your property value to go up or whether you're somebody who is never going to have children, but you know that kids are someday going to be running the city you live in, like we should be invested in them um, and the quality of their education. So, so I think these elections are really important. I wish they got more attention, um, but even when they get a little bit of spotlight, I get excited. And I'm excited about uh, Jill Enderly's election. She's... Um, somebody who's passionate about public education. Uh, she's a practitioner. Um, she's willing to get her hands, uh, get her hands really in the mix, uh, doing good work. She has experience in schools as well as in um, high level administration. So yeah, I think, uh, I think this is gonna be really good for our state. Robert, I know uh, you spoke earlier, you, you described Underly as one of the better superintendent candidates uh, we've seen in, in our lifetime. Uh, you must be pretty excited about this. This is uh, definitely good for public education. Uh, best I've ever seen because I was not around for uh, Bert Grover. I mean, these have not been thrilling candidates, even the ones that are supposedly the progressives. Uh, but Bob, everyone liked Ernie more than Bert. Oh, Bert Grover. I'm sorry. I apologize. Yeah, please. Uh, now that's old school. Anyway. I would just say, obviously, the spending differential. Now, there wasn't nothing for Kerr. The uh, Betsy, Betsy DeVos voucher forces came in with a couple hundred thousand, which in a normal DPI race might have been much more significant uh, than in this one. So Scott Jensen and the voucher crowd did their job. But I just say this is so the margin is partly that. But the margin is also partly the reason the Republicans have not been able to take this office that public schools are broadly popular and the voucher agenda is not. And the conservative agenda to undermine public schools is unpopular. And that's fascinating, of course, because we have a modern right wing that doesn't care whether it's popular enough. They're going to do it. They're going to undermine their enemies. And that's why we had an immediate flip back to Voss threatening some sort of punishment uh, for the Department of Public Instruction which leads education for all of our kids, not just blue kids, not just kids of parents who voted for Underly, um, but because, frankly, it's all about power with him and how dare uh, the voters and how dare the teachers unions and others support this candidate. By the way, they're the ones that deregulated campaign finance, not progressives, not the Democrats, but then they don't like the consequences in this kind of race. Well, Robert, I think it's absolutely 100% right. You, know, you both point out that Jill was excellent, right? And she's on the right side on issues that are publicly, politically popular. And, and I think you're absolutely right. Public schools are popular. Uh, I want to talk more, though, a little bit about, uh, Claire, you mentioned uh, schools get a lot of focus. And a lot of the big races for most people are the local races, these local school boards. And I want to highlight and draw attention to um, something that definitely appeared to be well organized by the Republican Party. And that was an effort in a lot of school areas uh, to run slates against uh, school board members who actually uh, stood up for science, actually uh, advocated for the idea that we ought to have in-person or some type of blended in-person. Um, and a number, in a number of these cases, these candidates were defeated, and, 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 and many of them were incumbent candidates. 
Um, and I just I, I want to raise this because obviously on the on the statewide level, uh, that issue certainly came up. Kerr was very adamant about wanting to open it almost dogmatic, uh, dogmatically uh, for opening. But I, I think uh, this issue may not because uh, underly won may not have the full attention that was happening in these local races where it's a concerted effort. And I want to suggest that I think this is part of a broader strategy uh, to try to, to to try to use this issue, opening or uh, fully opening schools, and we're going to hear it next fall as a wedge issue next year, uh, going into 2022, as an effort to try to peel back a number of um, particularly Trump voters that that they've lost, uh, folks who've left, I should say, uh, because of Trump in the suburbs and other areas around this issue. I mean, look, it's Dale, right? Senator Koyonga, who's in the heart of this area. This is an issue that he's constantly talking about. Claire, Robert, your thoughts? You know, I'll leave it to Robert to give you um, a, a deeper political analysis about this. But uh, I think the quick hit, quick hit I'll say is... Uh, I think you're right. Uh, I think this shows an evolved strategy amongst our opponents to not only recapture uh, voters that they may have lost during the 2020 election um, and to reconnect with them at the local level, but also to build a bench of like-minded uh, like-minded elected officials who can be developed further into higher levels of office. Um, and I, the other thing I'll say though is I think, I think this shows the power of local organizing. So you can throw a lot of money into a race like a school board race or a town council race and make a big splash, but you can make just as big of a splash by talking to voters directly, right? So there's two different ways you can go about trying to move folks. And what we're good at is we're good at mobilizing people. And especially in some of these small races where a progressive candidate lost to um, a one of these conservative slate candidates by something like 50 votes, right? Like 50 votes can be made up on the doors as much as it can be made up with a ton of money. And so I think it shows that like we can't that we can we can combat this and we can combat this using people power. We just have to be uh, doing it in a concerted, organized way. And that's why the work of organizations like Citizen Action of Wisconsin are so important, right? And why we need to keep working with candidates to say, you got to be on those doors, you got to be talking to voters, you got to be making your phone calls and sending your mail because they need to see your face. And you, you can win, you just got to work for it. With that, uh, we're going to take a break. Robert, we'll get back uh, and hear from you. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to The Battleground Wisconsin. We are talking about the spring election. Robert, we were just going to go to you before break to get uh, your thoughts. Right. And this is the whole question we had last segment which is around the school board gains that the right made, uh, knocking out a lot of good school board members around the state based on the school opening issue. Now, this has been a long-term right-wing strategy. I think people forget that in the 70s and 80s, the Christian right backlash was moved by stealth attacks on school board candidates and takeovers of school boards. But I think you're quite right, Matt, what you said in the last segment, that this is part of a broader Republican strategy for general elections beyond school board races. And it has power. And I agree with that. It has power for awful reasons. Uh, and it is partly that the right 
is selling effectively a very uh, distorted and socially irresponsible view of freedom. And they are saying that your freedom to have your kids back in school is Trump's, anyone else's safety, whether we get to herd immunity, which affects everyone else's ability to go out and and live a a pre-COVID life, uh, and, and just death and destruction. And so it doesn't see that with freedom comes responsibility. And the problem is the right is very good at distorting that. Really, it's the freedom values come from the right of corporations to, to kill, to maim, to pollute, uh, to cause financial collapses and steal wealth from hundreds of millions of working class people and black and brown people and get away with it, the financial crisis of 2008. Uh, but these are now, or create a global climate genocide. This is now transferred to average people. They don't get all the money and all the generational wealth, but they get some sense that they're being free Americans. You just don't have a right to infect someone with a, with, with a, with a disease, a deadly disease, or to prevent us from getting to, to, to herd immunity. But the problem is the Democratic message has been confused and complicated, and this, we have a much harder case to make here because we have to actually make a complicated argument about responsibility. And I'm fearful that we're going to have to pivot if we can have unity and an actual strategy across the whole very diverse Democratic Party. It's not all progressives. I mean, what do you hear coming from the governor's office on this? You've seen a duck, right, from the whole question of school opening and from the Department of Health and Health Services. Uh, And so since it can be made much safer if we actually enforce the actual CDC standards, we may have to pivot in the fall to we're going to let them open because politically it's going to take out most Democrats and progressives if we don't, because we've lost this debate. It's not just Trump's base or the Republican base. It's a lot of middle-class people. It's a lot of progressive people. If you hear it's going on in white suburbs. And so, but to then really enforce the standards, do we really have universal masking? Do we really have social distancing? Do we really have adequate ventilation or not? I got, I'm, look, you're focusing on all this rightfully from a public health perspective. This is lost because we have not actually given people the economic ability to, to, to live, to function. Most folks have had True. to go back to work. And so their True. kids stuck at home is a real burden. I talked to one of our organizers today. We lost co-op members because of our position that we took and that had, you know, that were progressives, but felt desperate over their situations at home, right? And so this is, as you mentioned, it's a real political issue that may not have, you know, the right, fully right public health uh, problem, because here's the issue. We are not likely to have vaccines available for kids under, uh, under 16. And until we're able to fully vaccinate them, they're going to be legitimate risks. Um, we got more to talk about on the show about what's happening apparently, with, the, with the strains. Apparently so, outside of black and brown parents, those are the places where they're not opening. With white parents, we don't have the politics. We've lost the debate. We've not even made the debate in an effective way. And you're totally right to add the economic piece, Matt. Uh, so I'm talking about... I think it's the about, piece. I think many of these I'm, people would have more no problems to, with your... No, no, I agree. But how how do you get more economic relief right now with the, the 50-50 balance in the, in, the, in the Senate? Can we got a massive amount through and with Republican obstruction in the state legislature? So if it isn't yeah. going to happen, I think it should have. 
and it still should, then we have to pivot to what would make people the safest. In other words, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good because, and, and we have a division. We need a governor's office and a Department of Health Services and school administrators and school boards that will have a clear, consistent message that, that makes sense and balances these interests. And we're not doing that on our side either. We'll, we'll talk more about this. I think it is going to be a defined, I think it's going to be a critical oh, issue. Well, we're going to see a play I don't see another out. solution, Matt, giving the politics and the democracy of it uh, and so, where we stand, how badly we've handled this whole debate. All right. So I want to take time, though, to mention a few other spring election victories that I think are important and worth pointing out. Uh, there were a couple of really uh, important mayor uh, progressive victories, both in La Crosse and Sheboygan. Um, and in both of those races, Citizen Action had endorsed. And in particular, I want to point out the lacrosse uh, race where um, we have a new co-op. Uh, we've had uh, we've had folks on from that co-op in the past, but and uh, co-ops Reynolds, are our membership model for those of you on the radio who may not know. Just so you know what Matt's talking about. But okay, go ahead, Matt. I apologize for interrupting. So Mitch Reynolds uh, is got elected mayor in La Crosse. And I know our organizing co-op uh, uh, has been heavily involved in working there. And that's a really important victory. Also, in addition, uh, a young, in fact, I think it's going to the youngest uh, mayor in Sheboygan. So I wanted to point those out because I think uh, these are areas where it's very important for us to continue to build progressive infrastructure and with a num- with a lot of work on climate and climate equity going on uh, cities are important places where a lot of this work can be done and hopefully uh, these are two new areas where we could have some leadership in that area um, but with that um, there are a number of other very important election victories we could go through them all but there's there's a lot of stuff. Uh, going on this week, and we got to talk to uh, a number of issues that are happening. Um, One of the first things, Claire, I wanted to get your comments on. Um, We've talked about this before. It's been rumored, it had been rumored that the work requirements, uh, which had been suspended uh, during COVID uh, for Medicaid, Badger Care, the work rules, uh, were actually going to be lifted by the Biden administration. And it appears that is actually what's going to happen. Is, uh, it, it, am, I, am I reading this right, Claire? Yes, you are. And it's very exciting. Uh, so to refresh the memories of our listeners, um, back when Scott Walker was still uh, governor, he and the legislature passed um, Medicaid work requirements, which in Wisconsin basically meant that if you were a childless adult and you were on Badger Care or applying for Badger Care, that you needed to work at least 80 hours in a month in order to keep your health care coverage, your health benefits through Badger Care. And uh, the the plan didn't go into effect um, right away. Um, Scott Walker left office before um, they could be implemented. These work requirements could be implemented. Um, and then during the lame duck sessions, one of the changes that Republicans made was to, um, to pass a law that prevented uh, Governor Evers from uh, withdrawing the work requirements. And uh, of course, that was, as we all know, an attempt to lock in their, their power, right? 
the legislature's power. Uh, <clears throat> but then when the pandemic hit, um, the state suspended the uh, implementation of the work requirements right before they were about to start. And uh, which is, of course, really important because it would have been so awful for even more people, especially low income people to uh, to lose their health coverage. Uh, uh, during the pandemic. And uh, now that we have President Biden, uh, we have new leadership over the federal agency that ad that administers um, states Medicaid programs. And they basically said, yes, Wisconsin, we think that on balance, this is not actually going to help people get coverage. Shocker, we all know this, this is not designed to incentivize people to work, this is actually to incentivize or designed to incentivize people to uh, force people off of uh, health coverage. Um, so, so yeah, the federal government says, you know, we're, we're not going to allow you to do these work requirements anymore, which is wonderful, which is wonderful and will be great for the people of Wisconsin. Just a quick thing to add to Claire's excellent overview. These work requirements, they may sound good. Oh, having people work. It's like a welfare reform in the nineties. This is just an attempt to create a barrier to getting health care. These, if these folks could easily get jobs, had the skills, the jobs were available, they had transportation, they'd do it, okay? That's clear in all the understanding of, 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 the, wor of the working poor. And this was a national strategy. Wisconsin's were not the worst, so this affects the whole country. This was just like voter suppression, but consider it Medicaid or healthcare suppression. And so it's great that we have an administration that can use its administrative authority to reverse this stuff. Uh, not only for Wisconsin, but for a whole lot of other states that actually have even more draconian work requirements. And with that, we're going to have to take a break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Before we get uh, to a special guest in our next segment, um, wanted to talk a little bit more about COVID, um, and particularly, it's it's been it's really big news in terms of this race that's going on right now, in in our in our country and certainly in our state to try to see if we can get vaccination rates up while we're having these horrendous these variants just taking off, and I think we're at five or six states now where. Uh, the variants are at extraordinarily high levels, including Michigan right by us. Uh, we had in Dane County this week, a childcare outbreak. Um, and I mentioned, we talked earlier about the whole school debate. Um, wanted to get both of your thoughts about sort of this, this is kind of scary. And, and one other thing, there's a lot of news about we're getting to the point now where there's openings in some places for, for uh, vaccinations. And can we get to a, to a, can we get to where we need to be for herd immunity, high levels of vaccination rates uh, with these uh, wild variants? Robert, you first, and then Claire, uh, just your thoughts on this. Okay. We're at the beginning of a fourth wave of COVID. And the problem is, even though the vaccines are, uh, advancing at a remarkable pace thanks to the Biden administration and actually having an administration that cares about running government. Uh, the variants are much more contagious. Uh, the dominant COVID in the country now is the British variant. I think it's 117. Uh, and frankly, there are five states that have massive spikes. And by the way, some of the red states don't, but they've stopped testing. 
So it's a little hard to tell about whether there are spikes other places like Mississippi and Alabama and Florida they or Texas. They've all ramped down testing. So who knows? We'll find out when the emergency rooms get full. And so it's helping on death rates so far because a lot of seniors, especially because of the, the order of vaccination, um, are covered. But it certainly can kill young people. And for the school opening debate, which makes the fall even more perilous, the uh, British variant actually spreads very well among children. And and uh, so and it's a little unclear how well the, the vaccines will do. But the herd immunity question and vaccination vaccination refusal is critical, and that's being advanced by the right. All of this stuff you're hearing from Republican governors about banning COVID passports, and that came from the state legislature here as well, uh, that not only is a, is a distorted view of freedom that you get to go infect people, but in addition, it reinforces the idea that the vaccine is dangerous, and then people getting flu-like symptoms after the second is also being used a lot on social media, et cetera. And it's on Fox News every night and other platforms. So this is very, very dangerous, this combination. And what happens if it keeps going, not only do you have whatever death uh, the mutant viruses, the new variants uh, provide, uh, you continue to have variations and you create a much greater likelihood if we can't get to herd immunity that we're going to have new variants that go around the vaccines. And then we're back to square one again and have a new pandemic. So it is amazing how dangerous right-wing ideology is. And this dangers the whole world. And Michigan is one of the spike states. So the idea it's not coming to Wisconsin very soon is ridiculous. But it, like the legislature doesn't know. And it's like on our side, we're not unified in an urgent way enough to take the appropriate precautions. We must get to herd immunity as quickly as possible, period. And then we have to help the rest of the world because we're not doing that either because the variants will be generated in the third world and come back. I think the only thing I'll add is that this idea of attacks on um, COVID or vaccine passports is, um, I, I think, really a misrepresentation of what COVID vaccine passports are, right? The word passport evokes this idea of a sort of government-run top-down regulation, because that's what passports that you use to travel internationally are. Um, but what these sort of COVID vaccine passports are really actually like a grassroots um sort of movement or ask from, from people who want to be vaccinated and from business owners who want to be able to, um, to host people safely who have been vaccinated in their facilities, right? This is, it, it's not like um, the state of Wisconsin has said, uh, we are going to create a state-sponsored vaccine passport and that we are going to require people to use it, right? Like these, where these are popping up around the country um, are, are places where like, you know, people who run event venues or people who run restaurants or things want to be able to say that they are open for business, but they, they want to limit their business who have to people who have taken these like very pragmatic, practical solutions to keep themselves safe. Right. So, so it's actually, um, I think really unfair for people to um, sort of characterize vaccine passports as part of some big government, um, you know, plot to infringe on freedom, because that's, that's really not what they are. They're actually, um, I think, a, a fair market solution to people trying to keep themselves uh, safe. So uh, I, <laughs> I, find, I find the objection to them a bit, uh, more than a bit absurd. And 
I would personally love to have one so that I could have some sort of official documentation or proof besides worrying about constantly losing my little vaccination card um, that I can safely be out and about in society when that time comes. Yeah, I, look, I, I actually have a question for both of you that I honestly don't know, but it's been really drilling on me a little bit lately. And, and that is, how close are we to having the testing of, ki- of kids where we could actually start to vaccinate, you know, you know, folks under 16? Because I, I think that's an important point that we have to get at because it's, 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 it, it, holds, it, it leads to that other conversation we had about the schools, um, which is a real serious question. I don't know if either of you are aware. The, the answer is we're still in the trials. Pfizer had an initial positive trial. I don't actually know the timeline for getting through them. We can see with all the AstraZeneca concern in Europe that it really should run through the trials because the worst thing for herd immunity would be if there was a problem with it with our kids. That would cause yeah. widespread panic and put us in a worse position. But it it seems like they're proceeding, but I can't tell you whether it's a month or four months or, or what have you. It may be out there, though. Yeah, yeah. That's just my, it's my biggest concern. And and so I see it playing out, you know, on these levels as it, we saw it play out on these school board races and as a re- broader Republican strategy or conservative strategy. Uh, it's sort of like they've got this, they've got this QAnon based strategy for the off year election. And then they've got this, what I would describe as suburban, they're old, uh, trying to get back the folks they lost for Trump that they're going to really hyper-partisanize around, quote, teachers unions and, and are you being opened or not? So we're just, we're going to have to continue to watch this. But um, so um, before we take a break here, and when we get back, we're going to have an excellent guest. We're going to be talking about the new project within these times that uh, Citizen Action and People's Action are launching. But before we do, Robert, you wanted to mention something about uh, Trump and Trump continuing to fleece his supporters. I just wanted to give you an opportunity to mention that before we go to break. I mean, this is all over the media. The New York Times broke it originally, but it came out this week, and there are more revelations this week. Uh, the Trump campaign automatically checked on people's boxes in order to get money, that they were doing a monthly contribution, which could be made weekly, and in- actually increasing the contribution and giving an extra contribution. And folks who were on limited incomes who gave you know, $100 ended up paying thousands. And there have been so many fraud complaints from their own voters that they gave back something like 10 times what an average campaign gives. They always give some contributions back when there are mistakes, et cetera. And so it seems to have been a business practice. And now the Republican, the, the Republican uh, uh, Congressional Caucus um, Campaign Committee is doing the same thing. And that act, those emails came out after the scandal broke. So they're doubling down. And I think it, it shows, well, it shows that the whole Trump presidency is a grift. We knew that. This audience knew that. But it shows their disregard even for their own voters, that they see them as marks and that they're willing, in fact, to offend them because, frankly, they think that they have ginned up the hatred of the other side so, so much that they'll still get the support. It's a really cynical calculation, and it actually, we know, I mean, it's not news for me to say how unethical Trump is or the modern conservative ideology is, but think about how powerful the hold of ideology is if you can get away with this scandal without a serious damage to their base, which I think is going to happen. So we can 
wring our hands, talk about what it shows, but it shows you the idea, the challenge we have of unpacking the ideology they've created, that it's powerful out there, hatred, fake, ginned up hatred of the other, black and brown people, libs, teachers, unions, public employees, you name the enemies, is so great, immigrants, is so great that you can fleece them in this way and treat them like they're, like they're marks and still get their vote. Well, before we go to break, I want to let our listeners know we've been talking, folks, about the Governor Evers listening sessions that he's having around the state budget. Want to let her, let y'all know that next Wednesday is another one, and it's going to be on justice reform and marijuana legalization. I know a lot of our listeners support that. Uh, it's a great opportunity for you uh, to attend that hearing. We'll have a link to that where you can go uh, participate 6 p.m. Uh, next Wednesday. Uh, again, marijuana legalization, uh, Governor Evers listening session. But with that, we got to take a break. When we come back, we're really excited. Uh, we're going to be joined by Hannah Ferris from In These Times to talk about the very exciting new Wisconsin Idea project that we are launching. We'll get back right after this break. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We are really, really fortunate to have a special guest with us. Uh, that is Hannah Ferris. And Hannah is with the In These Times, which, as uh, we have talked about, is launching a very exciting new project with Citizen Action and People's Action, which is our national, called the Wisconsin Idea. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Yeah, thank you for having me. Tell us, tell us from your perspective at In These Times why this project is so important. And what yeah. it is. So, as you mentioned, I work within these times, and I was actually born and raised uh, in rural Wisconsin, kind of the Chippewa Falls, like Lining Kugel area, if everyone's familiar. Um, so, I was really excited to get brought onto this project, which is a rural reporting initiative by In These Times, People's Action Institute, and Citizen Action, where we investigate and report on rural issues facing the state, especially in our rural communities in part because these issues are not addressed, you know, nationally or in a lot of local media. Uh, so a lot of the issues we're kind of covering have to do with the decline our rural communities have faced in the last 10 years, be it the decline in our public schools, hospitals, families more than ever are struggling to attain affordable housing, uh, childcare, access to groceries, a quarter of Wisconsinites lack adequate access to internet speeds, and for our Indigenous students, that number is almost 60%. And, you know, there are countless other issues, ranging from declining union memberships since, you know, the passage of Act 10, to Black voter suppression, to a boom in rural incarceration. So, um, so yeah, not only are these issues underreported on, but also the connection that these are the same forces harming both rural and urban Wisconsinites is rarely made. And we at the Wisconsin Idea aim to highlight these issues the rural organizing and fight that is happening to combat them, as well as you know, bridge that rural and urban divide that we see so often. So Hannah, this is Robert. So thanks for joining us. Um, part of the issue, we know that the rural urban divide also has to do with a lot of rural voters uh, not supporting people who don't support really revitalizing these rural areas who go to a you know, a lot of these areas that are in economic decline in terms of the numbers need massive government investments, just like our cities do, 
but you but you're they're they're sending folks who are against that, which perpetuates a decline or just supports corporate agriculture. And part of it is a cultural divide. That is, a lot of progressive communication doesn't speak to rural people. It's not in their language. And you combine that, though, Hannah, with the fact that we have a lot of media deserts. There, the whole uh, you know kind of journalist uh, you know for-profit journalism has been in crisis generally, but in rural areas. It's even worse where you have media deserts, where they're not even getting any news. All they're getting is Fox News, right? And so, and you know, in these times of legitimate magazine, this is not going to be propaganda. This is going to be legitimate journalism, fact-checked, that is um, that 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 all, that speaks to their issues from with rural voices, right? And from reporters like you who have a background in rural areas, and so you and Alice Herman, who's leading the project, uh, all, both have Wisconsin roots. So this is very Wisconsin-centered too. So this is a, a bit of an experiment to see if we can get progressive media in a way, uh, to, to rural areas, right, in a way that, that starts to increase the, the, the understanding of the conversation and bridge that divide. Would you, I mean, can you say, would you agree with that framing I just gave and, and add anything you want, Hannah? I mean, that's how I see it. And that's why we do rural organizing, because we're not, talking to enough people and, and with people who actually live there and understand the rural values. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's quite spot on. And a couple aspects of this project uh, that I think really highlight that are, in addition to Alice, uh, the editor of this and I, being from Wisconsin, a huge part of this project is building a network of reporters around the state um, in rural communities as well as uh, urban communities who are reporting on the issues directly affecting them, their neighbors, the people they've grown up with. Um, another aspect of the project involves some pretty intensive outreach that I've been doing, kind of along the lines of, of those media deserts, right, where there are just these like syndicates uh, where a single paper um, or company, right, runs news in like, you know, multiple counties reaching like 50,000 people. Uh, we're running a, an insert campaign where these stories that we've been publishing online are also going to be published in print to be run as inserts in the uh, regions that a lot of our stories touch on. For example, we have a story that focuses on, I want to say it's Polk and Burnett counties uh, up in northwestern Wisconsin, uh, dealing with the fight some uh, folks are having in those counties against a proposed CAFO expansion, a hog farm that's going to have like 26,000 hogs and, you know, 9 million pounds of manure a year. It's insane. Uh, so we've been covering that fight. And I think it's especially relevant because the local papers in that community, this has been going on since 2019, shortly after the fight started, stopped covering it because they were threatened by some industrial farms in the area, as well as a co-op that they would pull their, their advertising, their sponsorship, essentially the only thing keeping that paper alive. So the, the issue with the threat of maybe two people stopped getting covered. I think I had heard a reporter that had been covering it was also fired shortly after that. So I think that, that really highlights the need for this kind of reporting and this kind of outreach, like now more than ever. And Hannah, there's the political problem like reporters being fired, and I've experienced that with controversy. Young reporters get punished for covering the real news in their area. Uh, but in addition, some of these papers are very under-resourced. They might have 
someone, people who are, who are editors, who deliver the paper, who help set it up because they just, they, 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 the media and newspaper still exists, it's struggling. And this gives them more journalistic content. It's legitimate journalism that also improves those papers and might even help those papers survive kind of the way uh, uh, big newspapers use associated press, right? But this being, uh, you know, legitimate progressive journalism from a rural perspective about local communities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've talked to, God, I think a paper in almost every county around the state. Um, so 50 or 60 papers I've been talking to seem very interested, uh, very excited about this, are totally aware um, and transparent with what this project is. Um, so yeah, being a, a Wisconsinite myself, I am grateful for the opportunity to also support this hyper-local journalism. Hannah, this is super interesting. Um, I'm really excited to start reading about the interesting things that you all will dig into as part of the Wisconsin idea. Can you tell me, is there anything that you've um, found that you're, uh, you and your team are writing about that you think is particularly interesting so far? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's hard to choose, um, but it's kind of a sample of some stuff we've put out already. Uh, in addition to that capo piece in Polk and Burnett County, we have a piece uh, that I was really excited about highlighting the fact that there is this ultra conservative right wing militiaman uh, on the Brown County board as one of, you know, the nine supervisors um, who, you know, has been running a tea party militia page uh, for the past few years in Wisconsin, whose votes directly impact the uh, people of Brown County. In addition to that, some stories we have in the works, we are covering uh, the fight for fair maps in Wisconsin. We are covering, we have a, a couple stories about myself, I'm working on a story about rural incarceration uh, and the boom in it, not just in folks from the larger cities of Madison and Milwaukee who are increasingly being locked up, in rural areas, but also the boom in jail expansion in rural communities that are increasingly locking up members in these towns. We have stories about smaller farmers' difficulties and accessing PPP. No, it's, uh, yeah, and I was going to say, but there's actually, and I don't know how close you're tracking this, Hannah, because you're doing local news, really, but there's a right-wing strategy to get to these voters and to create kind of fake media sites that have the local, the football scores and the weather, but then lead you to disinformation kind of articles about, say, that the vaccine being dangerous or, or, or the election being stolen or what have you. And we've had some of those surface in Wisconsin. And the difference is we're not trying to do what they do. We're trying to give folks legitimate journalism because we believe in facts and we believe the facts will lead you in a progressive direction if we provide them, right? Yeah, so uh, as Robert had mentioned, we're also seeing this influx of ultra-conservative Koch Brothers-funded media. Uh, there's a new publication out in Spring Green, I believe called The Sentinel, that's putting out a lot of uh, propaganda, uh, pro-Koch Brother propaganda, that will make no mention of anything like the pandemic or anything systemic happening in the state um, but it's quite subtle as well. And I guess what I want to emphasize is that, you know, the Wisconsin idea is not just some like leftist version of that. We are legitimate reporting by people in Wisconsin who care about the success and healing of our state, of 
our communities in this state. Well, Hannah, this sounds like an absolutely critical project, and I'm super grateful that you took the time to tell us more about it today and that you're uh, knee-deep in, involved in this project. Thanks so much. No problem. Could I plug one more thing? Absolutely. Go for it. Awesome. Um, I just wanted to add that, you know, we are a network of uh, journalists. So if you are a writer or you are concerned about a problem in your community, feel free to reach out to me. My email is hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, at inthesetimes.com. We would love to hear from you. We would love to feature you. Yeah. That's great. With that, we've got to wrap up the show. Thank you so much, Hannah. And we'll see you all next week here at the Battleground, Wisconsin.